Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I am, I'm, well, I want to say that I'm woefully underprepared, and that's not true. I mean, I know a lot of things and I have a lot of great insights to share with you. The truth is, I just don't know which ones I'm going to share with you. And I don't know what we're going to talk about. And you know who mm. else doesn't know what we're going to talk about? Mm. Matt Welch, editor at Large Magazine. Nope. Speak for yourself. Michael Moynihan, Vice Absolutely News. Not. Yeah, uh, no idea. You know, Moyna, can I admit something to you? I still haven't watched that thing that you did for Vice that I've seen the, all of this praise on. Super good. Oh it's it's shameful, that and I'm I'm embarrassed shameful. to have to admit that. But I, I just want to keep it 100 with everybody. That, that's one what I'm our, doing today. One today of our fifth, fifth is going to be a day fans. of radical honesty. <laughs> <laughs> I love radical honesty. Um, one of our super fans, uh, whose first name is Andrew. Uh, tweeted that he'd watched it three times, Camille. So oh um, that's yeah. a lot. Oh my god! Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. He's that. and we can just tell uh, the listening audience since this came up in our Patreon, which we never talk about, uh, never. the regular po- podcast. Um, that <laughs> why would we do that? Moynihan's people get mad. Hair, which is the subject of quite some con- <laughs> controversy, controversy. Uh, yeah. uh, a couple of uh, episodes back. Um, was actually prior to hitting the record button on this podcast yes. that we're taping tonight was as crazy as I've ever seen it. It's like pure yeah. crisp, crisp and Glover. Um, uh, there was some kind of mixed like mixed with Yahoo Serious. <laughs> <laughs> it's a deep Australian cut. That's for Josh Zips. Now there's there's like, Josh. I, like <laughs> some kind of Italian kink was coming out there in the, yeah, uh, the was... East Egg Heat. Uh, yeah, it's cake. getting a bit getting a bit curly out here in the East Egg. By the way, I haven't gotten a cut since I filmed that thing um, that you should uh, watch. And I know that we're not allowed to promote things on the podcast that we we do because yeah. we might get an email. I'll never yeah. forgive that person who wrote an email saying we should devote ourselves entirely to, to <laughs> producing free content and giving it away. Yeah, for no, free. we should never we tell people about things we do. No, it's yeah. stupid. That just yeah. interrupts the free stuff that people are getting. <laughs> um, um, well, well, let me say this before before I forget because yeah. um, I was going to tweet it tonight, and I'll just I'm just going to tweet it tomorrow because <laughs> a lot of a lot of things intervened. Um, I had a rough one today. That's why my hair looks like that, Matt. Um, so. We do, we're sold out on the nine o'clock show, the seven o'clock show in Miami, June third. Uh, we'll post the link on the Twitter account, and we'll all retweet it. Uh, the Eventbrite link. But the earlier show, there are still a few spaces left. It's mostly gone to the Patreon people. Sorry for mentioning it again, but uh, there's there's a few left for for the plebs um, and. Uh, Held back for you guys, and we're gonna we're gonna we the fifth dot com uh, forward slash Miami. We the fifth. Yeah, that would, oh, you do that too. Miami. Yeah, there you go. Camille's smarter than me, but uh, <laughs> but yeah. So there's there's the other thing I wanted to mention. Speaking of shameless plugs, mm-hmm. um, but uh, oh, can you said we didn't know we're gonna talk about? Can I talk about something? Talk can about I start what? us off. Mm-hmm. To, to talk about what, dude? What is going on in Minneapolis? <laughs> Oh my god! I'm sorry. Like I know it's like sounds like a fake kind of like we had planned this, but like honestly. What is going on? Like literally the day, the anniversary of George Floyd's death in George Floyd Square, uh, so rechristened, which mm. I think the cops aren't welcome in. Is, isn't that, I'm right, right? That they, they're just like, keep out of here kind of thing. And yeah, they I have, think that's, 
I think those stand-ups that. are done either just outside or just inside the barricades. Uh, our yeah. uh, pal Nancy had written about uh, that. Yes, in the, they're the actual barricades. Shit that's going. They're barricades, and yeah. and uh, and which makes it one of the safest places in America for <laughs> yeah. black no, lives. No. Exactly. Uh, yes, it yeah. does. Weirdly, yeah. that doesn't because the reason I wanted to but mention the, this, the police have been abolished in that particular territory, and by the logic of the smartest people in America, that means black life will be preserved. Well, we can also ask Matt, which I'm sure he knows the details of this, and, and ask you about this in a second. But the LAPD uh, is uh, not getting as much money next year, and there was a piece in the LA Times about it today. Oh, um, yeah. but how much money they're losing? But uh, but yeah, so I bring this up because watching this thing, and there's a couple of people doing stand-ups. One for CBS guy, and the one that I initially saw was like an I think an AP reporter, and they're always <laughs> they're always British. Yeah, <laughs> and it was this British AP. He's like, we're all here at George Floyd Square, you know, everything's like totally nice, and like, and then just pat, pat, thirty, pat, pat, thirty pat, gunshots. Pat, pat. It was crazy, and like not just a small thing. And by the way, these guys are really bad shots because I kind of looked up and to see what happened, and it, the follow-up reporting was like someone came into the ER like a couple hours later with a gunshot wound, and they're fine and going to survive. It's like. Who are they? How bad a shot are these people? Crowd of people, 32 shots. 32 like, shots. 32. Discharges of uh, firearm. And maybe one person got winged a little bit. So the question is this. I mean, obviously, this is, I mean, literally the place where George Floyd uh, was killed uh, is now the place uh, where one year later, where there's a bunch of media around, nobody even cares. There's media around, cameras everywhere. They're just opening up on their enemies. We don't know why. We don't know who. It seems to be kind of irrelevant. But I think the question is this. This is the question that I'm going to pose first to Camille Foster, who is an expert on such matters. Um, Has anything changed (laughs) in the past year after, you know, so many murders, so many, um, you know, defund the police debates so many rallies, so many uh, bridge crossings in New York City, right by my old apartment, snarling traffic and all these stuff for, you know, and oh, and all the corporate stuff too. every company sending out their thing, every um, corporation doing their stuff on Instagram, everybody posting their black square. What, gentlemen, one year later is different. Is anything different? Has, has there been progress made as we were promised camille foster i have to ask you that first <laughs> promised by whom coca-cola um <laughs> benetton <laughs> um some shithead that works at the coffee shop that i go to um lots of people they have the I shirts mean, on yeah it's a huge it's a huge question obviously many things have changed um this is the as you mentioned the anniversary week of the the passing of George Floyd, also the anniversary week of the the horrible events in the Ramble at Central Park, um, which <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk right. about in yeah. a little bit. The, the yeah. travesty um, that led one Gail King to, to opine that it seems like it's open season on black men in America. I suspect that the principal thing that's changed is many more people are acutely aware of their race and of race in general. Polling suggests that an increasing number of people are pessimistic about Mm -hmm. race, more pessimistic than they were a decade earlier, (laughs) more pessimistic than they were before the election of America's first quote unquote black president of the United States. And I don't know. I lost my train of thought. 
<laughs> it is. It has been. Let's just acknowledge I Matt. My, I lost, I lost we'll my train cut, of thought. We'll cut Camille out and say. Let's acknowledge yeah. it's been so traumatic for Camille in the <laughs> last year that it's doing a number that on just, his brain. Smoking yeah. all the weed. Like, yeah, he wasn't smoking, smoking all the weed, weed before. Not, not even. That's now. the sound of the police. Smokes yeah. all the weed. I, I think that got lost in all of this, and it still gets lost even in all these retrospectives. And you'd think that there'd be enough time and space in the journalisms in between dodging live fire mm. in George Floyd Square. Um, it's like to the mention offensive. <laughs> that a thing that we mentioned uh, at the time when this all went down, uh, and it's not a small thing, I don't think, which is that nobody defended Derek Chauvin. Nobody. That's, that is correct. That and, is absolutely and, correct. Uh, when Rodney King was beaten by, by 5,000 yes. LAPD cops on <laughs> videotape... Yes. Um, with uh, very very racist names too. Uh, the cops the had cops. racist names. Oh god, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, yeah. the mustaches were racist. I mean, everything yeah. about it was racist. There were Stacy had a last name that was a racial slur. Right. Thank you. Remember that? I mean, that's uh, pretty bad. That's how racist it was. Oh my god, you're right. Um, yeah, it was. It was pointed out at the time. I think my uh, my brain thinks 1991 and 1992. Stacy and he goes straight to um, uh, which is a UNLV <laughs> reference, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, no, the, uh, uh, the at the time, and we saw this play out many times after Rodney King as well. Like there was a reflexive defending of the police. Like, well, you know, Rodney King was on drugs. He's a multiple felon. He did this, did that. Some of these things were true. They were not mm -hmm. at all exculpatory or, or particularly interesting in the case when a guy is being beaten by sixty-three thousand police officers, sixty-four thousand yeah. um, at the same yeah. time, and. And including by people who self-identify as libertarians, whose names shall not be uttered on this on this podcast, but uh, uh, who uh, wrote letters to the editor to the L.A. Times saying that maybe we need to va ban video cameras. Um, hmm. uh, that's the that's the great takeaway of, of having watched this kind of stuff happen. What, what who um, the hell said that? <laughs> what a who great said that? libertarian, Lou Rockwell. Look up his name, huh. Lou Llewellyn Rockwell Jr. Did he really Jr. say that? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. He wrote a letter to the editor to the Los Angeles Times saying that the takeaway from this is that maybe we ought to be uh, we ought to uh, ban cameras. Uh, you okay. betcha. <laughs> you absolutely betcha. I wonder why that guy has been laboring on the fringe for so long. It, it, there must have I been just, some sort of sarcasm. I, wa I want you right? to know that. No, go look it up. It's not sarcasm. I come to my dislike for Wait, certain when, people. When, when was that? That was 1991? 1992. 1991, 1992. And please, I want you to understand okay. that uh, because I, I, I want a little bit of credit here, is that while I was talking and perhaps even while I uttered the name Llewellyn Rockwell Jr., um, uh, I felt something on my toes and I looked down and it was a giant cockroach. And, oh. Are you still, and, uh, Do we want to yep. disclose this? Yes. Wait, you yeah. have cockroaches on your feet? Yep. Uh, well, what? I don't anymore because do I killed a motherfucker. What do you, where do you live? I live in a like basement. In, you're like in Fat Brooklyn. Albert living in the junkyard. <laughs> what are you doing, man? That's <laughs> <laughs> old Will Harold. Here it comes. Whoa, 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 whoa! I do. That's a step I too far. Do, 
the Negroid voices on this podcast. No, don't, okay, you absolutely. Do that's not. that's by the way, that's a cartoon voice. So everybody I know, can do that I was, one. I was joking. Well, actually, one of those voices is super racist um, <laughs> on that show, and it was also a show that was voiced uh, by a rapist. So, well, there's there's yeah. a lot of problems. Do you know that, had he done Fat those Albert. things at the time? I don't know that we we know that. This oh, is he important. was uh, yeah. No, no, no. He was he'd been honing his skills for for many years. This is oh. well. Uh, this is at any rate, like, like, uh, like, there was Sorry. immediate condemnation by police officers, by everyone on the political right, by people who you, by I think Donald Trump. I don't, I don't remember, but I, but Sean I don't Hannity. think Sean Hannity. Like everyone said, this is bad. And what happened? So within uh, a one calendar year, which is pretty quick compared to uh, some other uh, well-known trials, particularly in California in the early 1990s, um, uh, you had. The city of Minneapolis settled for $27 million to the family um, in, uh, in a civil lawsuit case. You had the police officer put on trial for anything, but also for murder and manslaughter, and he was convicted. Like, mm-hmm. uh, that is that's that doesn't happen very often. I think we took the under on that bet um, yeah, when this originally went sure. down, and for good reason, because it just doesn't happen. So um, you had this, this weird thing where, like, nobody defended it. Everyone recognized that this was a terrible thing. Um, they, there's some argument about the gradations of it, about the toxicology reports and some other kind of things, but no one said that's good policing. Nobody ever, uh, said it was. And then justice was meted out. We can sort of talk about whether they might've created a situation where this will be a, an, an appealable conviction. Um, certainly I, I'm not a big fan of the fact that the federal government, the justice department has opened up a civil rights, extra federal case after the conviction. Um, just to sort of show that we really mean it or something like that. It's pretty double jeopardy from what I'm from my point of view. Um, but uh, what we cannot say is that uh, justice was denied in this case or that there is an American divided. So it's a really curious thing that hmm. uh, the the kind of the felt results about this is that America is more divided uh, than ever. And those hmm. polls are right. I mean, they've been going on since basically since Ferguson even a little bit before uh, people yeah. suddenly trended uh, pessimistic on this. And yet um, rarely um, justice happened. And even though it's been very uh, haphazard um, and kind of jiggery pokery, and that's very racist, obviously in some wow. direction, um, mm-hmm. the, there have been some mild reforms done. There should be a thousand more done in the wake of it uh yet but none of that feels like that and i think it's kind of interesting to try to figure out why it doesn't feel uh that way can i can i I weigh in quickly with the just just a response to your question went ahead because it it seems to me that the, the most important thing that's changed is that america's national conversation on race which we we're always told we need to have which essentially means you need to shut up and listen and, and have someone explain it to you they'll tell you what the appropriate thing to think is has never been less productive has <laughs> 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 never been more incoherent and bizarre the identitarian wings um, the left and the right the ones who want to segregate workplaces um, because they believe in the superiority of whiteness are now competing with the ones who want to segregate workplaces because they believe in the superiority of whiteness. Um, I suppose it's only a matter of whether or not they're doing it for the Negro's own good. There's just a weird, in many instances, completely unintelligible kind of craziness that has taken over 
the the country it seems in some respects or at least that is dominating most of the public conversations about race and i think it's created some alarm and concern in some circles um, i think the response to it has been healthy among some people and among other people um, increasingly i see kind of a, a kind of counter hysteria that has been animated a, a pronounced concern about wokeness that often seems to trend in the direction of, oh my God, there's going to be a race war. And oh my God, this is the end of the country. And it is worth pulling out all the stops, in some cases, betraying fundamental principles in order to stop these people because they are not playing fair. And if you don't see just what's at stake, just how bad it is, then something is a matter with you. So I, I am... I am both eager to participate in these conversations and baffled by just how insane things have managed to become uh, around these issues over the course of the past year or so. And, and also, I should say this as well, I think there's a lot of weirdness that's taken root in the country, perhaps largely as a result of COVID, but certainly related to trajectories that already existed and I think there's a lot of evidence for this that is present in the news cycle. Defects that we've kind of documented and tracked here on the podcast for a long time, but that are particularly pronounced uh, around issues of race and conversations related to race and, and media coverage that is infected, possessed by race. That, so is, that is probably the most important point, actually, because, you know, if you look at those polls and look at the attitudes that people have and whether they're, they think, you know, that we're going in a positive direction, or negative uh, direction on this particular issue, it is obviously trending towards the negative. Are mm -hmm. there examples of things that are happening enshrined in law, you know, happening amongst law enforcement? I mean, we see these things being blown up um, when they happen, but are they happening more frequently or less frequently? The answer is less frequently. So we have, we're in a unique time now where, you know, you have a, a sort of radicalization in the 1960s that is a response to a mostly a segment of the country that is enshrining uh, sort of racial superiority in laws. And, you know, churches are being bombed and kids are being killed and, you know, fire hoses and dogs and the Edmund Pettus Bridge, etc., and now we have a, a, another kind of version of we are talking about race all the time. It is really infecting everything that we that we, um, you know, where we work, uh, what we read, our media, etc. And there doesn't seem to be a comparable swing towards the negative. Now, everybody on Earth who believes this stuff would right now, you know, have a heart attack. Is probably hyperventilating and, you know, reaching into their computer to try to strangle me. But it doesn't seem to me that this is something that is tracking with real world events. This mm. is tracking with social media. This is mm -hmm. tracking with, you know, people on TikTok who are 18 years old giving lessons in black history uh, to those <laughs> of us who don't understand what's going on in the world. And, you know, it is the fundamental. I mean, this is the thing with like the 1619 Project. I do think that there's so much nonsense in response to it. I mean, I think the project itself is ridiculous, but the response is often, you know, equally as ridiculous and overheated and heavy breathing. But mm -hmm. the, the, the point that should be made is that 
it is a political exercise. It is not a historical exercise. These are, you know, of the people, the person running it is not a historian. There are the smattering of historians uh, in there. I think, you know, the one who wrote about capitalism, so he was a sociologist or something at, at Princeton, actually one of the most criticized pieces in the 1619 uh, issue. Um, but this is the kind of fundamental struggle right now is for, you know, control of the past and control of the present. I mean, this is why these battles are are uh, being fought the way they are and and, and in the most depressing way. Who's going to ban what? We should ban the teaching of this. Somebody else should ban the teaching of this. This is, I mean, the moment we're in is totally insane. But to Camille's point, this isn't something that is specific to race. I mean, this is something, this is a game plan in a way. I don't think it's, you know, people you know, uh, sitting around twisting their mustaches and petting their their uh, white cats and having this kind of evil, uh, you know, meeting where everyone says, this is what sorry, we're what going did, to do. What did you say about George Soros? Yeah. Could you say yeah. that again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You repeat that? I, this is a long way of saying uh, the Jews because that's what, uh, <laughs> that's what it always comes the back to. The weather machines. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Space lasers. The space lasers. Marjorie Taylor <laughs> yeah. Greene. Everything has got a, everything's a yellow star. Everything that what happens is, that, is a yellow star. What is that kid's name in, in D.C.? He was a county councilman or something like that? Oh, who yeah. Who was talking that. about the yeah, weather was, machines? Yeah, he this was, is the th- people, he was people great. People forget that these folks exist on both sides of the political oh, 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 spectrum. But here's the thing. They are that, there. It's so not a you, matter of equivalence. It's just true. Did you see this woman <laughs> who was, you know, Republicans are opposing her. Uh, look up her name, Camille, the, the Civil Rights um, Commission woman. You see this, who uh, wrote a bunch of things when she was 19 years old for the Harvard Crimson about how uh, white people are genetically uh, inferior to black people. And she's now claiming mm-hmm. it was like a parody of Charles Murray. But mm-hmm. um, she mm, also... Like actual things that Ibram Kendi has believed. Well, this is the thing. For. And she, right. she invited, I think, Tony Martin... Uh, to to speak, uh, who uh, was at Wellesley or something? I can't. He was an absolute lunatic. He's in Mary Lefkowitz's book um, mm-hmm. about these mad Afrocentrist scholars, and she, you know she wrote this stuff when she was nineteen. And you know you can forgive these people um, a lot, but I, th- I think she's kind of been a bit goofy in the in the intervening years too. But the thing is this, is that, you know, Tony Martin, that guy who was a Holocaust denier, by the way, spoke at the inter- the Institute for Historical Review, all these batshit things. Um, they existed in academia at the time. Crazy, crazy people that, you know, were, you know, melanin obsessed kind of, you know, racial superiority in the other direction that the mm-hmm. Greeks were actually black and this was a heritage stolen by orientalist yes. white historians the Greeks et and the egyptians and the egyptians it's all, my favorite all prominent historical figures were black <laughs> essentially all of civilization owes its existence to the black man well do you Which, know interestingly you the, white the, identitarians make a, a competing claim the claim <laughs> of the sphinx <laughs> they're both stupid the, at the uh-huh. time there was the claim of the sphinx that had, yeah, they shot n- off his nose because no, it was yes, too it was, it was too recognizably negroid. african and it yes. had nothing to do with erosion <laughs> <laughs> it, was just, it was a race so these people have this, always existed but now it's totally growing mainstream up, growing up i heard that but this is the thing it's always been it's always been kind of mainstream in the sense that these are well-known realities um tanisi coates between the world and me like he talks about his convictions about these things uh at, at howard university yeah. and how he had to have a lot of these these beliefs dispelled while he was at university which is actually the, among the most interesting things about that book. This this is stuff that I've always been 
familiar with, I suspect that most black people in urban settings encounter stuff like this. It's, oh, it's yeah, yeah, the yeah. same. It's the same thing with like Snapple being effectively some sort of weird like KKK product and the sales of it where churches churches to support racism there was churches and, uh, yeah too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. These, these conspiracies are out there. The, what's, what's, a, what's insane is, yes, it's in the water now. It's in yeah. the mainstream. And there are various major news stories, like the, the, the dog walker story, that get reported in a way that is so, so explicitly biased and one-sided mm. and so completely not even remotely as the like, pretense of objectivity to it. <laughs> like... Mm. So it's who wants to who wants to walk nuts. through that one a little bit if if you can I, I think we got uh uh some uh uh snapshots of a lawsuit filed in the Ramble thing and that's one of our better episodes frankly the Karens and the Ramble episode yeah. mm-hmm. I think uh, Barry was on that one yeah she uh, was indeed yeah yeah, yeah. see yeah. Um, I almost want to I almost want to and maybe maybe we'll do this I almost want to drop in the audio from that recording where we. Provide a bit of context. Oh yeah, yeah, Let's yeah. Establish some facts because it's not clear yeah. that he was filming before. <laughs> Camille, before. I'm just a country lawyer. Let's just, <laughs> let's just lay it out there. So it sounds like on Memorial a Memorial Day weekend, uh, two two Karens were out in the park. They both have the same last name, but they were not together. One Karen decided that she would take her dog off of the leash in the brambles, an area of the park where dogs are not the supposed ramble. to be. Off, the <laughs> off, of, off of the leash in an area where the dog should not have been off the leash, but she decides to break the rules anyhow. Another Karen, this Karen is apparently Batman, uh, sees this egregious crime taking place and simply cannot stand the injustice. And he confronts her. He bravely risks his life and he confronts her because he is an avid birder. And he's wearing binoculars. He's a grown-ass man wearing binoculars to look at birds in the park <laughs> on a holiday. He's by himself. This is weird. He's just a, he's a weirdo. And he's harassing this woman. He says, hey, your dog should be on a leash. And there is a transcript. We know what happened because he wrote a transcript well, for that was him. and posted way, it to just Facebook. To be clear, it could be clear. It's his transcript. Yes, I think he wrote the it. actual transcript. The first one was like, "Fuck you, birder!" Like, what do you think you're doing? Like, get out of here. Fucking that that may have been that may have been how she responded. I can only imagine. Dogs like, off the leash. Yeah. Oh my god! So he, Everyone he in New York City punk rock. <laughs> so he insists that she should put dog. the dog on a leash. She refuses. The situation escalates, and it, it, it begins one, to escalate when he, in confronting her, says to her, he "If says, you're going to do what you want to do, I'm going to do what I want to do." And you are not going to like it. He's going to poison the dog. And then he pulled out dog treats. He's going to poison the dog. Pulling out dog treats that he carries. These are his words on Facebook. For just such intransitive. Which is insane. Which is insane. That's an insane. Which is, I mean, and this is why I say he's Batman. Because he he has a utility belt. He has a utility belt. Ranger Rick, Ranger, Ranger Rick of the Central Park Park Rangers Auxiliary was on the scene and he was prepared to give this dog some treats. He says, come here, puppy. <laughs> the dog, she, she, Karen, Karen, number one response. He's not going to come to you. 
And he says, we'll see about that. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it is at this moment, apparently, according to Karen number two, the avid birder, uh, that the video (laughs) begins to roll that we've all seen at this point. And if you haven't seen it. So, yes. So, Amy Cooper, Amy (laughs) Cooper, and Christian Cooper, the names of these these folks who are involved. Amy Cooper. The white Cooper and the black Cooper. The the white woman. Hanging with Mrs. Cooper. On the gentleman in the in the in the park, and Christian Cooper, the celebrated hero of the story, the purported victim of the story, who, in fact, at the time, as we described it during that previous podcast, was a, a bit of a vigilante Batman police auxiliary figure who routinely, we now know, routinely would go to the park by his own admission, carrying dog treats so that he could pounce on or <laughs> harass people who had their dogs <laughs> off leash because it was a problem treats. for him it was a problem for him as a birder to have these <laughs> oh, dogs God. off leash wandering That's around weird. he didn't like it so he took matters into his own hand he's the bernie gets he's the bernie of gets of central yes. park and and what we learned today is that Amy Cooper has filed a lawsuit against her former employer, Franklin Templeton, who at the time that this occurred, fired her. They fired her once this story went viral. Yes, they claimed at the time that they conducted an internal investigation (laughs) and they fired her for being racist. And at the time, (laughs) what did we know in that first day? I'll tell you what, not much. What do we know now? having reviewed some of the documents associated with this this lawsuit, which it seems to me that she's probably got a pretty good shot at winning this lawsuit. I think she probably and, does, and quite yeah. frankly, I hope she does. As we said before, like she should have put her damn dog <laughs> on the leash and he is a friggin' weirdo who should stop trying to give treats to, to dogs. But the thing that most stood out to me in this story is that she astonishingly has details about Another gentleman who had an encounter with Christian Cooper, the birder in the park, who published a statement back on May 26, 2020, that you have never heard of. He sent it to NBC and they didn't publish it. No one has covered this. But Amy Cooper has details about this. And he describes a circumstance where Christian Cooper does precisely the same thing to him. Same language. Offering treats to his dog, insisting that I'm going to do something and you're not going to like like it. it. And apparently there was some sort of physical altercation between this gentleman and Christian Cooper. You're missing the salient detail here. The guy, the, the guy was black. So, oh, just well, kind of, meals, kind of meals, salient, salient to some people. Because, well, yeah. well, well but, 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 but salient, but certainly salient in the context, in the context of something of this, that is presumed to be, and they're like, about there's race. just another racist in the ramble. Yeah, <laughs> it's just there's so many. <laughs> See, that's where the Proud all these boys, white people with their dogs. Proud boys, the dog division of the Proud Boys, mate. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's yeah. utterly amazing that that there is. A previous incident of this, one in which it becomes palpably obvious that when he says, I'm going to do something and you're not going to like it. He said the same thing. Not only is that a threat, literally, it's a threat that he has acted on in the past. Yeah. The notion that she didn't have grounds to suggest that she was going to call the police. And although in this case, she does say, I'm going to call the police and I'm going to tell them that a black man Mm -hmm. is um, is. Mm -hmm 
I, I forget the specific words that she used, assaulting me or something along Threatening those lines. Or, yeah. 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 Now, now granted it is, I think it's fairly sane to presume that she said black man in that context, because it was already in the ether that, you know, blackness and police means that the police are not going to be kind to you, sir. But I don't know. That's what I thought when I first heard that. And I said that during the podcast at the time. And I was like, let me just flip this. She's basically saying, like, everybody knows that, you know, if I say that you're a black man, you're going to be really in trouble. I mean, she's essentially accusing the police of being racist. Maybe. I don't know. I suspect that she was actually afraid. Like, at some point, she's yelling, like, leave me alone. Get away from me. Leave my dog alone. And his response is... I'm going to do something and you're not going to like it. Mm. Like this is Sexy. a shitty situation. Yeah. And the reporting on this <laughs> all presented Christian Cooper as a goddamn hero. Amy Cooper as an unmitigated racist. He's a burger she, who went to Harvard. <laughs> and she was prosecuted. Was it for it like up. filing a false police report no, no, or something? The, I believe it was. Yes. And there was yeah. a new, a new law passed as well as a Amy result Cooper of this. Pet, I don't yeah. believe they Karen called law. it the Amy Cooper law, yeah. but, but it's effectively a Karen law. They called it the white that, racist that criminalizes, lady with law. <laughs> Well, it criminalizes calling the police under false pretenses because of racism, which, again, I don't know how you figure was all that, that out. Was that a law that we really needed? <laughs> that we just, and by uh, the way, apparently. I just oppose having tons of laws. That's just my yeah. opposition is just having lots of laws. But it's so funny that, that we literally react. And Matt mentioned the Justice Department getting involved in the George Floyd thing and, you know, really driving the case home after the conviction of Derek Chauvin and, you know, the other three officers are going on trial too, is that I don't like this politicization of everything based on media coverage and the volume of media coverage. You're getting, you know, federal action, state action, city action based entirely on how much people are talking about something. And therefore, we have to, to, to presume to be, to be doing something, which is why she's filing a lawsuit against her company, because the company mm-hmm. had to do the same thing. We're like, we have to fire her within a day because we don't want to get tarred with this thing. And like, mm-hmm. you understand their instinct in some ways of like, well, mm-hmm. you know, but but here's the thing that's interesting. Go back also, over also the past understand year. That they lied. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean that they they had to lie to do it. But go over the, the past year, past two years of all of these stories so many incendiary stories that that you know take off on twitter how many turned out to be exactly what we thought they were in the at first blush you know and you think of Covington, we, who's we who's just we here now? The, just the, the 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 media i guess in general i mean the way a lot of this stuff has been reported was that we have all the information and that is it and it has turned out uh, in so many instances that there's far more information that does not you know, further a particular narrative, whether it's the shootings in Atlanta at the massage parlors, whether it is, you know, this story, which, which, you know, just sounds like two fucking crazy people, not one crazy person. I'm not blaming him, not blaming her. They're both seem to be totally crazy. And then, you know, um, you know, the Covington thing, which is, is, uh, you know, what's his name? Uh, Reza Aslan saying, you know, let's punch this child in the mouth or something. Do you remember that? He was yeah. like threatening physical violence against like a 14 year old doofus kid from from Kentucky. But um, but yeah, like all of these things, we cannot wait because it's important that we get onto Twitter and show everyone on Twitter, show our colleagues on Twitter, show people in the industry that we are on the side of the righteous, then we are on the side of good and we uh, abhor racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, whatever it might be. But all of these things turn out to be 
always more complicated, whether it is, you know, police shootings. You know, it's, you know, it's now kind of becoming known because the, the debate got so hot of the number of people who were shot by the police, the, 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 uh, or unarmed people, the context and the complications that, that, hmm. that those numbers bring. Um, the same, I mean, remember that there was a, there was a, a spate of murders of black trans women. And this was like, look it up. I mean, there was, a million stories about like we have to do something about this epidemic and it, it was transphobia is is violent and murderous and that turned out really not to be the case because people were looking into almost all of these things and there um unfortunately a number of them were uh, trans women who were um prostitutes uh, or involved in drugs and the drug trade, and there was that's a violent place. Uh, both of those, uh, especially when you're on the street, kind of streetwalker stuff, and you know all of these things fit this narrative that remains. I mean, if you ask people who are kind of media literate, they'll remember that there were all these trans women, black trans women, specifically being killed, and that there is was true. A, but there was not because was, of what people thought there was happening. There was so. a, a a massive uh, uh, march in your Barclay Center, not far from where I'm sitting right now with the cockroaches running over my feet. Uh, there was a Black Trans Lives Matter 2 yes. uh, protest of like 10,000, 15,000 people uh, last mm. June, about thir- uh, 11 months ago uh, here, and like all the politicians and stuff were, were there. I want to I want to tie this into the way oh, Just that, the one thing, Matt, just to add yeah. to what you said to the politicians there, the, a, the stuff in um, Atlanta... And to the to the Karen uh, uh, legislation in New York, which was so desperately needed, uh, don't call the police uh, and false racial grounds when dogs are involved, or whatever the fuck the bill is. Mm. The um, there's so much a- anti Asian uh, hate crime stuff uh, being pushed through uh, Congress, local legislatures. One passed, I think, with almost universal Republican support uh, recently, um, but that of course, is a, a far more complicated story than we originally assumed, too. So anyway, yeah, there, there's a there's a couple. It's, of- it's complicated is a re- recurring theme. Uh, quickly, Matt, to correct the record, the criminal case against Amy Cooper, mm. a white woman who called the police on a black bird watcher in Central Park and falsely reported that he had threatened her was dismissed on Tuesday after Miss Cooper completed a therapeutic program that included instruction about racial bias. That is uh, from a February 16th, 2021 New York Times story. I should say for the record that the assertion that she falsely reported that he had threatened her is inaccurate. You're not going to like what happens. (laughs) It was not. It was not false. It's It's fucking true. He literally (laughs) threatened her. You're not going to like what happens. The end. Yeah, <laughs> maybe so, there's a bit of moral clarity on the part of the Times there. But some of the um, of what we react to and what we see on a like daily, weekly basis, um, and now we, I'm talking like uh, fifth column we, um, but also other people in our broader universe, is the attempt Covington style, also Karen's in the Ramble style, and other like high profile. Um, uh, situations sometimes it's maybe a firing of somebody um, including people that we've had on this podcast where a bunch of journalists will come in either uh, sitting at institutions of authority themselves or, or just being on the outside but you know they used to work for Gawker or whatever and and saying um, well actually 
you know, Covington kid really did have it coming. Well, actually, Karen really was bad. Like, even as more evidence comes in to kind of complicate the narrative, uh, insisting on doubling down again from one arm removed. And uh, I'm going to uh, to talk briefly about two that happened this week, even today, uh, perhaps. Uh, one is something that Glenn Greenwald flagged. There's a reporter, not just a reporter, but a reporter uh, from The New York Times who is on the COVID beat, who today, right? This is the context is that now, uh, suddenly, magically, miraculously, over the last two weeks, it has become um, okay in respectable journalistic outlets like Washington Post, Glenn Kessler, Matthew Iglesias, a bunch of other people to say, hmm, maybe there really could have been a lab leak hypothesis is that your that's relevant. Voice? Yeah, it you is. You did a little <laughs> bit. Uh, I mean, neat, neat... I, I... <laughs> uh, Glenn Greenwald caught this New York Times reporter, or just retweeted, not caught, named Apurva Mandavili, which is a wonderful name, um, tweeting, t- I think it was today, the, the mm. following. This is someone who writes mm. for the New York Times about COVID. And keeping in mind, this is uh, posted... A matter of like hours, perhaps minutes before the president of the United States said that he's launching a 90 day investigation to figure this out. Um, So she writes, (laughs) she writes, someday we will stop talking about the lab leak theory and maybe even admit its racist roots. But alas, that day is not yet here. Come on. Come on. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, not racist. Come on, Kenrad. Unbelievable. Come on. Like, <laughs> what the even, fuck does that mean? Even working through the racism of that doesn't make what sense. What is it? What is the... Can someone... Can you try, Matt, to give me an explanation of why that's racist? Because the Wuhan flu. Um, and so, therefore... It's, it's similar to how in February and March, even, I believe, in New York City, you had the mayor and also the then uh, head of the health department, like going down and marching in the Chinese New Year parade or whatever it was, yeah. the Chinese parade. She was like, saying, I'm going to go I'm down do- and buy a fake Gucci bag today. I, you should go buy a fake YSL bag. Let's support. <laughs> I'm, I'm demonstrating my solidarity by marching with a bunch of people who are all wearing masks, by the way, but not me because yeah. I'm not racist. Uh, this is back in, in March. Uh, 20. No, it's, it's the uh, it, it was this reflexive notion um, that was widespread in the media that asking the question and granted it's people asking the question like Tom Cotton and we all hate Tom Cotton. So it must be bad. Um, and so therefore must be racist. And this is people who work for the New York Times and work for uh, prestigious publications sort of deciding that the inquiry itself must be uh, racist because uh, Donald Trump obviously just wants to call it the Chinese flu, the Wuhan flu or whatever. Um, that's separate from the origin of where this came from. The origin of where this came from is an actual story. Donald McNeil, the former and and like uh, unfairly bounced out um, COVID reporter for The New York Times, had a piece two or three weeks ago. Well, they would say that, he is racist at The New York Times. So. Yeah, they, uh, <laughs> they, they basically did. Um, and he actually smoothed this process of having the mainstream kind of say, well, actually, maybe we should now think about this now that Joe Biden is the president or now that whatever information that is different uh, came out. But this is a problem, actually. Like, it is to uh, to preemptively filter what might be 
or might not be the truth or, or even just an avenue of inquiry based on what we think the person that we dislike yeah, is exactly going right. to use with yes. it. That's not how fucking journalism works, dude. Uh, but that's None how of it works, works during that the Trump way. administration. That's the kind of plague of the Trump administration was that the broken clock theory is that was null and void. That means that two times a day we have to say that this is probably wrong too, right? Even if that like the broken clock is right twice a day. Because I don't understand this is what this woman has to clarify for me. Is if that line of inquiry is itself de facto de jure racist, does that make uh, was it Nicholas Wade, uh, who is the, is that the guy, the New York Times guy who wrote the Medium uh, post that was really, really good? He's a Times, uh, a former Times science journalist. I think it's Nicholas Wade or something like that. Yes, uh, it is Nicholson- Nicholas Wade, also author of A Troublesome Inheritance, his, his book about genes, race, and human history. It's a book Oops. of race realism in which he is insisted that, true? that race was absolutely legit. His is real that true? Science, biological shit. Yeah. Oh, you don't why are they all like? Maybe they all are racist. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, I don't I think. Gonna, I don't think. Did I don't he think really it's write that? racist. I don't think it's racist to believe that. I think no, he's I'm wrong. just surprised. I think he made a bad that. argument, but oh. yes, he wrote that. Oh, yeah. okay. He wrote, I believe he wrote that shortly after he parted ways with the New York oh, Times. Oh, he's that and, guy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That no, I remember. Wade. Well, Nicholson yep. Baker, we can go to Nicholson Baker, who wrote the cover story, uh, the novelist who wrote the cover <laughs> story. Very, and Very good journalist. Very, very good uh, piece. He wrote a very, very bad book about World War II called Human Smoke. But this is actually yes. quite, quite good. Um, you know, and now Tony Fauci, he's saying, yes. you know, I never said it could be a possibility. Who knows? We're well, going to look into kinda it. Nev- you kind of you kind of said he explicitly he the opposite. He did say um, the opposite. Which, you know, there's so much like weird stuff here that's worth God, um, getting into. Sucks these days. Doesn't it? <laughs> well, that's oh, God. Everyone's that's the thing so that I think bad. that's of of primary importance here. But what what the hell is the science, and what does it mean when people say the science mm-hmm. says? What does it mean when people say they quote unquote believe in science? What is yeah. that? Yeah. That catechism. What does that actually suggest? <laughs> um, and also, when it comes to like media reporting in particular about things that are very technical, what does it suggest that the media has managed to get things so profoundly wrong on important issues like that, that they bought into that consensus that's proven to be erroneous? Of course, mistakes happen, but this is, it seems kind of systematic in a way that's important. And what, if anything, is the relationship between the kind of reversal that's taken place there and the very interesting way that people are covering these UFO stories oh, no. um, all no, across no, the, the media industry now. No, no, I'm being, I'm being very serious here. Like something that something that four or five years ago everyone would have laughed about is now being Except covered me. in a very earnest way. But they're pretty much just reading press releases on air, interviewing the same person over and over again who's giving their account. And to the extent there's any kind of conversation happening it's fairly superficial it isn't informed by thoughtful skepticism there isn't assertions about well what if we're wrong about this how do you know you're right yeah in many instances i don't even see a, a concrete kind of detailing of the facts that make one particular position more credible than the other beyond in some instances like with covid and whether or not it originated in a lab people asserting that the science says that's the difference or right re- researchers are telling us and, and, and the reality that, that this shit can just be so completely wrong 
seems like something that we really need to take a close look at beyond political biases and how they might affect conclusions. The fact that the journalistic establishment simply is, is doing a bad job with lots of these things and perhaps just doesn't have the capacity to do better as it is currently constituted this seems like a really big deal because they got a lot of shit wrong. I'm going to say is, one is thing COVID before, airborne? I'm just going to interrupt you, Camille. I can't get a word in here. <laughs> no, it's Matt, cool. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to cut you. I'm going to cut you off and just give you one quick right. thing here. It, all, all of that <laughs> is true. Right. And I would add uh, one thing to it. It is totally fine in the midst of a pandemic with a disease that a, a virus that we don't understand to get things wrong. The difference now between, you know, what journalism should be, maybe it once was, and maybe I'm make, making believe that this, this was the case in the past and it's not now. Uh, mm-hmm. What it should be is saying, we don't know, here's kind of where the sign that where, you know, a majority of scientists are leaning right now. The problem right. became the existence of Donald Trump and Donald Trump going out there and making an ass of himself every day and saying dumb stuff every day, which is true, uh, is that this science thing, this catechism became the thing, right? It was like, they, we are so sure of it, is that it became condescending. It became kind of mm-hmm. a class thing. It became a sort of we know and you kind of bozos don't of like, well, you know, we all know <laughs> that it wasn't made in a lab, you know, come on, Tom Cotton. And all the headlines are like, fucking moron, Tom Cotton, comma. You know, it's like everybody in the headlines and leads. And, and it was the without evidence thing that I always talk about. I was looking these up today. There was a, a, a story that's talking about the conservative uh, media ecosystem. Uh, three studies is in the Washington Post saying that uh, the conservative media ecosystem was spreading misinformation and lies and things without evidence. And some of this stuff is undeniably true because some of it was just dumb. But there was the the lab leak theory in there. Now that has has turned. We can allow ourselves to say this is unexplained. It seems as if the balance of evidence at the moment is pointing in this direction, but it could turn at any moment. And that is something that we're incapable of doing, because as you pointed out, Camille, the wrong people are saying the thing that might be true. I um, want to um, try to bring in uh, sort of like uh, suggest an overlap between the concept of public health and the concept of fact checking. Right as it is as it is done in the modern modern uh, parlance, something that really came uh, of age about ten years ago. Journalistic institutions, the Pointer Institute, and others, um, and uh, major media outlets started doing a fact check thing, where like, okay, these politicians said this, so the lie of the year is going to be X. Oftentimes, the lie of the year, as I've mentioned before, was like, oh, a conservative we don't like who's no longer in power said a thing that sounded a little controversial. Let's go there as opposed to the people who are in power who lied about a thing. It's not Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Uh, it came a little bit late. It's uh, Mike Huckabee and, said this on, on Newsmax. Yeah. Uh, so, like, um, I think one of the things that the pandemic has really illustrated is that public health, the way that it's practiced, despite the... In- the professed intentions of the CDC um, in 2006 to say like the most important thing is to be an honest broker with the public to give them information about what you know and what you don't know um, and and like assessments of risk management and allow them to come up with their own conclusions based on stuff. That's not what and has, racial equity. Don't don't forget. Don't forget mm-hmm. racial equity. Um, that's not <laughs> oh, what has happened. Instead of that, um, in general, at the CDC. 
keeping in mind that the CDC doesn't want Moynihan to ever get a vape, doesn't want a pregnant woman to drink a, a glass way, of wine. See that thing in my hand? Yeah. Indian Reservation. Of... <laughs> I'm sorry, Native <laughs> American um, <laughs> area of land. Maybe it what was a dot. Who knows? It's yeah. the, and, and this, I go there and they're like, fuck, fuck the white First man. I'm peoples. like, exactly. Give me some vape. As I said before, I feel bad about what happened, but you know, the vaping is pretty vape. good. <laughs> um, so the public oh, health God. people throughout this uh, pandemic, like literally to to this week, to this day, continue to... Uh, massage their messages not based on this is the best thing that we know but mm-hmm. based on this is how we want to model your behavior that's and, right and my suggestion is and, and like you know the easy is uh example of that is masks there was a mask shortage a year ago and so we pretended the cdc pretended that masks aren't all that because they didn't want everyone to hoard the masks and then can when you masks use, can came- you use different language matt could could we just say that the cdc lied that the CDC and various other public sure. officials, including, well, including uh, I, don't, Fauci. I forget, I forget what, I forget yeah. what my verb was, but I don't think that it was that it was a, a gentle, a ball cupping verb, um, <laughs> in a good way. The facts, I think you said, um, <laughs> but like this, this happens constantly uh, through this pandemic, and again up to this week with Rochelle Walensky talking about you know uh, outdoor. Uh, uh, spread you know is a little bit less than 10 percent. this is just bullshit this is <laughs> it's like le- it's less than 10 percent, and that's a true statement because it's 0.01 percent yeah it's also <laughs> less than 50 percent. it's also so, less than 80 percent. we have <laughs> learned, in, fact, in fact i have learned what uh, my colleague jacob solemn wrote about 15 years ago um he wrote a, a reason cover piece that i frankly thought that the framing of it was hyperbolic at the time and i no longer do which was, uh, I think it was called the totalitarian implications of public health in quotation mm-hmm. marks. I'm like, that's ah, totalitarian. You know, I'm, I have an allergy to going there. But the um, for me, it's the we are not going to give you information as we see, as we understand it ourselves, because we don't trust you with it. We're going to shape it. So this is what the journalistic fact checking industry, um, specifically with the lab leak theory, but not only with that mm-hmm. has been doing the the proper role of that industry should be exactly as Moynihan says. This is what we know and what we don't know. This is the limits of our knowledge as we understand it. There could be some other stuff that comes in. There might not be. Um, but this is just, you know, a quick journalistic snapshot of what we know and don't. That's not how this has gone especially in the pandemic, but certainly not only in the pandemic. And you see, as we've gone through this sort of moral clarity of, uh, you know, uh, imperative of news, as we talked about in the Wesley Lowry episode, um, you see this uh, being admitted to and being acted upon uh, specifically by news organizations. And here's one example that I want to tie into this. Um this happened, this is a sentence or a little section in the New York Times today talking about anti-Semitic violence. There's been a lot of anti-Semitic violence um, in the streets of big cities, including in New York. There was scary like mm-hmm. fireworks or maybe a small like bomb. Um, people just like getting their asses kicked um, in New York as a result of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or in response to um, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict conflict and this is a, a this is a, a, in the new york times not even in the fact checking thing but in a news article until the latest surge 
anti-Semitic violence in recent years was largely considered a right-wing phenomenon. I'm sorry, what now? Hmm. Uh, I will repeat that. was largely considered a right-wing phenomenon, comma, driven by a white supremacist movement emboldened by rhetoric from former President Donald J. Trump, oh. comma, who often trafficked in stereotypes. That's this, in a this news is a news story. Today. It's in a news article. Yeah. I know, because yeah. it was so funny, because I used to see in my neighborhood all those Hasidic guys um, getting getting beaten up by neo-Nazis, because that's exactly what was happening. I mean, the, the, the amazing thing about this, and there's one thing you should take away, and I, I, I have a mea culpa here, is that if you go back to the earlier episodes of this podcast, maybe three or four years ago, the start of the Trump administration, all of this stuff coming out, FBI, you know, going after Donald Trump, and I kept on saying, you know, there's probably some there there considering mm. the amount of material uh, that is being released and the number of stories we're seeing. They, not everybody can be wrong about this. And I had some sort of trust that um, these people had some level of professionalism. I think in the past year, I've actually gone, and I guess this is what happens as you get older, you become a fucking kook. But th- I have literally zero trust in any institution anymore. And after COVID, I'm trying to find one that is consistently not full of shit or trustworthy. And whether that's mm. the, you know, WHO, uh, which has been clearly in league with the Chinese government and saying mm. that China's doing a great job, they have it totally under, under control, et cetera, and then refused to criticize China and, like, you know, was hanging up on reporters. I don't know if you remember that, uh, when, when uh, uh, China is, like, you know, uh, Tibet or the Uyghurs are brought up and they say, oops, sorry, can't trust them, right? Can't trust mm-hmm. the, you know, Fauci saying that the masks don't matter, then they do. You can't trust your local government to say, oh, go down and hug people during Chinese New Year to, oh, my God, swaddle yourself in masks and wrap yourself in plastic. Matt mentioned vaping. I have this vape in my head. I can't get this. I have to go to the Indian Reservation because of a concerted campaign full of lies, literally based on nothing real. Uh, well, young people like flavors. Okay. And, you know, what's what's the following point? Remember, recall that media campaign of the number of people who were dying of vaping. They were dying. That's what it said in the headlines. And that precipitated all the bans. Turned out in the end, as I was pointing out the whole fucking time, that that's like saying, you know, you know, the act of drinking things is killing people when you find out that they're drinking Drano. Because what they were vaping was bootleg THC cartridges that were made in the black market. Thank you, drug war. You're killing people. But what you're doing mm-hmm. is banning more things. And you can't trust these people uh, on that. When it comes to race, people talking about police shootings, people talking about, you know, you know, people being hunted on the street. That's not true either. You know, and, and no, no one can be trusted, particularly the media now because it's overwhelmed by people who are increasingly stupid, increasingly young increasingly full of you know absurd ideas that they somehow stick to them like napalm in college and then they try to come out and take these absurd absurd views that are usually wrapped in you know incoherent and incomprehensible academic jargon and then smooth that out into the newspaper now or into npr now and you know all of a sudden you open your eyes and the word equity is on npr every morning i'm like wait when did we define this 
and say that this is a real thing? And when did we explain to people what is going on with equity and how that's different from equality? It's like, no, 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 just trust us. We know what we're doing. We went to college. We went to college. We spent $80,000 a year to go to Skidmore. So please respect what I know. And now I'm going to be the fact checker on COVID stuff. You know, that this actually was, somebody pointed this out the other day. It was Pointer. Somebody at the Pointer Institute was like a 23-year-old recent college grad uh, who was fact checking, you know, scientists on, on COVID stuff and particularly on, on the no, lab leak no, stuff. That's you know? not good. That's not good. No, that's the way we live now, though. Just don't trust anyone i mean that's i'm not asking you to be paranoid because they're not out to get you they're out to just massage the truth and hope that you're not noticing well i think the point the point that i've tried to make in a number of contexts and and that i am always surprised not that there's pushback but that the pushback tends to be very determined in this way as if i'm trying to like undermine some sacred principle some essential value that we can't can't do without I'm frequently find myself challenging like the the presumption that journalists one can be perfectly objective um mm-hmm. and perhaps even the the assertion that they ought to be generally um objective that this is a a, a good ideal for us to strive for and generally insi- insisting that it might be better for us to uh, try to to try to encourage a style or approach to journalism that is suitable for the world as it is and not the world as we'd like it to be. Like the reality, as you alluded to earlier, Moynihan, is that many, many things are complicated. Mm-hmm. That the the correct answer, so to speak, is in many instances, we don't really know. Here are some things that seem really interesting. These yeah. are trending in this direction. Here are ways that we might be wrong about this. Yeah, yeah. Here are things that might happen in the future that could tell us you know, whether or not we're wrong in this particular way or that particular yeah. way. We're going to have to keep tracking this. In many instances, that's the best you can get. And in that'd be in great. I'd most love that. Other, most <laughs> other instances, like it, it would be great, right? And in most other instances, like even even things that seem like kind of straightforward, like it should be easy to just give me a distillation of the facts. Like it it matters. Is an assemblage of people who are breaking windows um, a riot? Is it an insurrection? Is it a demonstration? Is it mostly peaceful? Mm. It might be all of those things. It might be one of those things. But the choice of words matters. And the choice of words is a function of subjective appraisals of circumstances. And someone knowing that, armed with that fact about reality, ought to be sensible and dutifully skeptical when they're consuming media products. And these days, one needs to be determined in their skepticism because it is the case that there are more, there is an abundance, a superabundance, I'd, I'd say, of motivated political activists who believe themselves journalists and profess their impartiality and objectivity while making bold proclamations about the way things are that are informed by their biases. Um, I'm thinking Don Lemon uh, about a week ago on CNN insisting that the Republican Party is fundamentally debased, that the Democrats are the only like reasonable party. And that is not a biased, politically motivated appraisal. That's his objective opinion as a journalist. That's his job. Um, Did he one, present I, it I think that he's way? Actually, 
He did, in fact. So yeah. as a journalist, yeah. this is the objective. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. This is this is my this isn't me being political. I'm not a political person. I'm a journalist. <laughs> Didn't he say you know what's wonderful? He's on screen with two other people. Yeah. They're there nodding yeah. along. Because these are things that people say. And quite frankly, <laughs> journalists have this these these irrational, contradictory beliefs about their profession. Not necessarily all of them, but many. And lots and lots of citizens have similarly irrational beliefs about what journalists can actually do and can actually be. And I think that there is something dangerous about that kind of utopian misperception about what can actually be attained. Yeah, but who's who's out there as a journalist saying that I that objectivity is the is the achievable goal and I'm part of it? I haven't I, I haven't heard that. Just just facts. These are no, these are like, like, assertions like, that are made routinely by major publications. Really? They, they still they Who? still do this, and and I just gave no, you I mean, one, Don Lemon. I mean, <laughs> like, Don and Lemon other, and various Don other Lemon people on is CNN a, is is a, a lipstick, you know, uh, I, like charlatan think, on on cable news. But like as I think, a, as I think a there concept are plenty of journalists who would tell you con- that they I, are being objective I, and they believe themselves objective, even in instances I where they're obviously I not objective. I don't. I've been I've been yeah. following the journalism objectivity rules since I've been in journalism, which is now like seventy four thousand years. I mean, same number of years as cops beating Rodney <laughs> King. Um, and uh, objectivity was was uh, poo pooed. I got like. 25 journalism books over here mm-hmm. next to my Carl Yastrzemski sport magazine that's going to get Moynihan all hard. Yeah, look uh, at that. Look look at that, that look incredible that. stroke, yeah. It's yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, that could be interpreted a lot uh, of ways. I'm looking at a picture of yep. Carl Yastrzemski in... Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, no, uh, where like uh, objectivity was seen by the kind of up-and-comers uh, in the 60s and 70s in the same way that you see it right now. It's like, oh my God, I'm sick of hearing about this objectivity. It's bullshit. But everything but they is do subjective. Aspire to obje- they do aspire I to objectivity. Heard, there I is an not... affect of uh, there's an affect of objectivity that people try to approach in their reporting. I disagree. That there's a, a way to, that they I try to a, sound objective. I, I, I absolutely is, disagree okay. as someone who's okay. followed this very closely and written about it for thirty okay. odd years, which is that there's a there's a uh, a an aspiration of fairness which is different than an aspiration of objectivity and impartiality, people, fairness. I don't even think impartiality. I don't even think I'm you don't partial. think impartiality and fairness are kind of generally I think I, deemed I, to be the same. Uh, no, I, I think in terms of what are the words that people use to describe themselves? This is one of the big flaws in media criticism, especially on the non left in my view is that what is uh, uh, presented as or what is probably ascribable to bias is presented as agenda. I was thinking about this. uh, I mean, one of the first, I used to write a media column for Reason Magazine. One of the first ones that I wrote was about my friend, Andrew Breitbart. It was called Biased About Bias. And it was talking about the conservative critique, his critique in particular of media back in the day, which was that um, the journalists themselves have this agenda. Now in 2021, they do much more than they did in 2004, to be sure. But I think the mistake is to assume um, uh, is to mischaracterize the self-conception of people. And I, I don't mm. think that the self-conception of journalists that I've known um, uh, is that we are objective. I think the self-conception 
Um, and there's a lot of holes in that that are worth probing, but it's important to know who you're talking about and how they perceive their own work. The self-conception is that we're trying to be fair and important and to make sure that democracy doesn't die in darkness. There's a bunch of bullshit (laughs) that's baked into that, to be sure. But it's important that it's not, I think, that you don't hear uh, the word objectivity in that sense. In fact, the the dominant narrative right now is more in the West Lowry thing. West Lowry shares your disdain for the concept mm-hmm. of objectivity as a goal. I he know. says that we need to have moral clarity. And I he has think a that, different a different remedy. This is a different kind of utopianism, and I object to that as well. Right. But I think that you should be clear about uh, how what is the self-conception within the industry. And I don't think the self-conception within the industry is objectivity. N- not, There's some, yeah, I for think, sure. I think that's mm. just not... I think that's inaccurate, and I think it was probably more obviously inaccurate right after the election of Donald Trump, when all of these various media organizations were adopting new mantras and the the distinction between bad journalism on one end and good journalism on the other end was that bad journalism is biased and inaccurate and misleading fake news. And good journalism is, yes, objective, credible, fact-based and real news. And I don't think that's that, the vocabulary. I'm, I, well, think it is, I think it, it is pretty yeah. I think it is. objective. It, like objective people have been talking about that word for 45 I mean, honestly, fucking time years. Had a, time had a cover story that said, is truth dead? Like when, when, oh yeah, when, oh my God, when dude, I, J- I wrote, when Tapper, when Tapper went on, when Tapper went on like the, the late show and was getting like applauded, he said, I, I just do the facts. Like I'm, my job is not to be liked, which you is a fucking hear this lie. You're on television because you're, you're going being to celebrated. Hear this as hair I'm just splitting, telling but you, you, you're going to hear this as hair splitting, but you need to hear uh-huh. it. Okay. Objectivity isn't in that set. Truth is. Yeah. Facts again, is. I, I think objectivity I think is not in that set. It's yeah, not. I, I think. I think we're. I think we're. We are doing some hair splitting, and the thing but is, it's important when I to when split we, hairs. If, if we were to poll, if we were to poll a bunch of readers of major news publications and ask them if they have a concern about bias versus objectivity, if they had an expectation that newspapers would be objective, I think a plurality of media consumers would tell you that they want objective news. They just want the facts. In fact, I hear it all of the time, all of the time. Uh, let me ch- and and let me- I, I think they use those words interchangeably in many instances. And I think a lot of journalists do that as well. I, I, so, let me try a third I, way here, because I think yeah. that both is kind of I, I agree with both of you in a way. Um, if you were to ask reporters now, and I think this is a very different class of people, you talk about Wes Lowry, he is of a generation, probably a little older, but this younger generation of people that, you know, the the insurrectionists at the New York Times, um, they believe that newspapers used to be objective or try to be objective. I, mm-hmm. If you talk to those people, I guarantee you, because this is where all the conversation starts happening after Donald Trump about both sidesism. And they believe yes. that this is kind of an attack because like, you know, and again, we can talk about, you know, definitionally what what we should call that. But I imagine if you ask a lot of young people, they would say, well, you know, newspapers uh, and journalists tried to be objective in the past in objectivity. And this is, of course, their read on things. Objectivity mm-hmm. allowed them, enforced in, in them 
to report things that were fake, report things that were lies. And in this generation, our new conception of journalism is to push back against that, not do both sides of them. And we are going to do truth. And again, all of those terms get kind of murky because I see them uh-huh. used interchangeably. But, you know, the one thing that is really different is that, you know, there, if you t- like take Pravda, for instance, the Soviet newspaper, that wasn't another side of something. There wasn't another side of a debate. It was literally called Pravda, which is truth in Russian. And that wasn't another side of a debate. Those were inventions. That was a kind of a fantasy world of red plenty of what they wanted the world to be, but wasn't. And there was a gun, you know, being nuzzled in their back between their shoulder blades saying, write the right thing or you're going to the gulag. And the difference between that, for instance, and then, say, British newspapers where people try to kind of, you know, get things right. But, you know, there's a left wing one, uh, the Guardian, there's a right wing one with the Telegraph, etc. Whereas now, maybe I'm heavy breathing myself on this, but it seems to me that there is a agenda without there being agenda. I think it's totally wrong when people say they, you know, people at the New York Times go to work in the morning trying to further a very particular agenda. No, it's just what they like. It's what they were used Mm -hmm. to in college. The way they see the world is that, you know, there's certain sentences that are dangerous. And if they are published, they do harm to people. They should not be published. They're not going to work thinking these things. But when it comes up, this is what I learned in the past six years at Oberlin. And good God, we cannot have this Brett Stevens thing going on. We cannot have, you know, an editorial from Tom Cotton. I mean, the whole place is going to collapse. I don't feel safe. That is like materially yeah. different from the past where it was like, well, we're going to pretend that we're fair or pretend we're objective or pretend we're factual, whatever it might be. But we're not always going to be that way, right? We're going to kind of thumb the scale mm. a little bit. There's there's like unconscious bias, if we're going to use that term. And there's story selection bias, which, you know, mm-hmm. you're only... It's totally true, but you're only reporting it when Israelis do bad things. You're only reporting it when Palestinians do bad things. All of those stories are actually true. But taken mm-hmm. in, in a vacuum, it's quite a different thing. So I think that now my read on this, which is is increasingly depressing and making me depressed is that there is a totally different conception of what the the role and a job of a journalist is and how they should comport themselves and how they should report and should they be um, open about their opinions, for instance, on, on Twitter, a woman from the AP, a uh, young woman was just mm-hmm. fired for tweets yes. from when yeah. she was in college. I think it's completely unfair um, that were really, 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 really uh, anti-Israel, um, really bad. And I was like, oof. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she was, you know, uh, it was like three or four years ago, not that long ago. She's a young person. But should you mm-hmm. have those, uh, you know, um, opinions out there when you are a what? unbiased journalist, right? About uh, writing about the Middle East, writing about, uh, uh, you know, and there's always the things like, oh, we can't have that correspondent reporting from Jerusalem. It's almost like Donald Trump's thing about the judge being Mexican. It's like, because that person's Jewish and they're an American Jew and they're going to report from a pro-Palestinian side. All of that stuff has changed. And for me, I, I just get this sense now that it is about, you know, this kind of worldview and not about an agenda. If that's a, a distinction mm-hmm. without a difference, it might be. It's it's. There's not a lot. I I think a distinction, and that's interesting and bad. I think like yeah. the uh, the the both sidesism 
And uh, I think even perhaps in the same Time magazine uh, cover that Camille referenced, which I wrote about uh, at, at Reason, I mean, there was this, this nauseating interview with a guy who used to be a time muckety-muck and then went into the Obama administration shortly after, uh, right before the 2012 the uh, yeah. uh, presidential uh, convention or the, the Democratic National Convention, um, was like, you know, what are you going to do with your interview with, with the president? for your big like time magazine back when that was mm-hmm. even semi big um, kind of like Q and a, it's just like, you know, you look at all these Republicans, the terrible things that you're doing, you know, you really hope to change the tenor of the com- uh, the, the country. And it, it, it didn't work. What, you know, what went wrong? And it's like, you know, they just weren't ready to handle the truth. Uh, and it's like, yeah. And that was like the whole framing of the article was like the, the country and Republicans in particular are not ready for, the massive truth bombs that uh, Donald Trump or not Donald Trump, the Barack Obama was uh, laying upon us, which is crazy. Um, that was crazy in itself. And it continues to this day. But I think that it has gotten much more even explicitly agenda driven. And I think that the 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 kind of uh, the, the camel's nose in the tent on this is actually the phrase both sidesism because the rejection of both sides, which is like an incredible thing to me. It's really an incredible thing. And all you have to do is watch Michael's wonderful uh, documentary for Vice uh, just talking to Republicans in Texas. That's mm. all it is. Um, and uh, it's bad hair also. Both things. Um, and driving. Why, why would why would you talk and drive that serial killer van? It's terrible. I, I killed like um, 40, 40 children. Uh, I just ran them over. They're, they're, I just, but they're immigrants, so it's, yeah. it's, it was fine. Um, uh, no, but like it, is it's that it's kind of, yeah. um, it, it's that uh, it, it's it's admitting up front that there's an asymmetry that journalists should construct their own news around. The asymmetry being that Republicans are crazy. And let's keep in mind that I think the Republicans are crazy, too, um, as a national party uh, on some level. Um, but like that, that that should structure the way that you book your weekend shows. Like, obviously, don't have Rand Paul on a show. Come on. Of course not. Um, you know, that kind of thing. You know, he's a sitting U.S. senator. It is that translating that into this conception, which is different from 2012, of of that you know, we have to uh, uh, zealously guard our platform to make sure that the bad people aren't on it. Um, that is a different conception of mainstream journalism than recently. Um, it's much more instrumental. It's much more like um, like translating the West Lowry moral clarity argument is that we can't do our normal stuff of even pretending that there might be a case or there might be people who have beliefs on this side because um, those are people doing the bad thing, especially the bad information thing. Um, and so that will give them power. So we can't do that. That stuff is new. Um, but isn't Michael, it amazing that that postmodernism lost out of all of those ideologies that these young journalists were exposed to in college and postmodernism's idea of truth and, the, the you know, they're not being an objective truth. And that truth is contingent upon societal factors and, you know, personal perceptions and things like that. In what, in what way do you mean that it lost? Oh, just the fact that, that people come to journalism now with, you know, Camille just sent this thing, this uh, Facebook uh, thing from uh, the New York Times. Like, come to us if you want truth. Like, full stop. Yeah. There is a thing. It's called truth. Like, there's a thing and it's called science. And you're going to get it here. And like this squishy yeah. postmodern thing, which was always like, you know. 
Uh, we can say that, uh, you know, the Germans invaded Poland on September 1st, 1939. That's the only thing we can say. Beyond that, there are no truths, right? Discover the truth with us, says the New York context, Times. Yeah, ridiculous. context for that is 2017. Mm-hmm. This is the New York Times paper of record. Yeah. They had a big media push and the slogans associated with this media push at the same time the Washington Post adopted democracy dies in the darkness were just facts no alternatives Mm -hmm. discover the truth with us and the the simple elegant truth is hard it's not though that's of course (laughs) what they do that's just it but but no actually actually it, it it kind of it kind of is right there's an important respect in which the truth about really complicated things is often hard to get at and hard to explain how contagious is covid it depends on when you're asking we only know so much at a certain point in time how is covid contracted how safe are the vaccines Mm -hmm. the people who are doing the reporting on this stuff actually know almost nothing about the science related to rna-based vaccine efficacy in many instances this is right like at least the people who are reading the prompter at fox news like they don't know and neither do the kids who are helping them get ready for these shows and matt it's hard because any polling that we're able to reference related to this is probably not going to be some poll of like all of journalism and how journalists view what they do. But I do think it's important that when the paper of record imagines the way to market itself to audiences, those are the narratives that they select. Yeah, and, and the when word the Knight Foundation is and not when in the Knight Foundation, And when the Knight Foundation, along with other prominent media organizations like Gallup, are polling people just a year ago, asking them about their values and their sensibilities about traditional media, 68% of Americans say they see too much bias in reporting of news that is supposed to be objective as a major problem. The word objective appears in this major study in a poll serving 20,000 people again by the Knight Foundation. That's fine. Like these I'm aren't, just saying these Camille, are arbitrary Camille, it's organizations. Point. I'm just it's saying a minor it's, point. I'm just saying that it's part of Camille, it's, it's not what journalists describe their own work. Give me, they don't I use the word objectivity me, to describe their I hear work. You, they don't. And, I, and what did I just what did I what I'm saying to you Matt is that I use the word objectivity and people use words like objectivity and truth and unbiased in interchangeable ways, especially unsophisticated readers. And when the New York Times is marketing itself, it talks about itself as the dispenser of capital T truth. That is, in my estimation, not fundamentally different from sensibilities. About you know, no, I will say one final thing, which is. Related, but I would I would suggest the New York Times that I have a new ad campaign for them if they wanted something that um, would actually appeal to probably use appeal to somebody like yeah. me um, is not to say you know we're the the dispensers of truth and you must uh, listen to us because we won't lie to you the other people will my problem and it just kind of occurred to me when you were talking Camille about um, you know how do you get COVID like that that there, there's a good one right. You know, can you get it when you're outside? All of this stuff. None of this stuff was clarified, by the way. I used to go on about this in, yeah. in the, you know, on the podcast uh, during the pandemic. Can I, do I have to wash my hands all the time? Is, or is that bullshit now? Right. No one ever told us, right? right? No one ever came out yeah. and told us. Yeah, yeah. Because the point of the New York Times here is not about truth. What they're saying is could be true. You know, the capital T truth. And it's not, it's kind of what they're not saying. So is don't tell me that you're going to dispense truth. Tell me that you're not going to be political. 
tell me that you're going to remove politics from your journalism because the act of telling me certain things about COVID and kind of alighting other ones is always a political decision because it's always what Donald Trump was saying and we were going to be on the other side of that. If Donald Trump was right about something, they would probably, you know, do their damnedest to say, well, he said that without evidence. And that is what incubates the larger point that it's not true, right? Is that he didn't say it without evidence. Like he's, they said this about the, 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 the so-called conspiracy about the lab leak. I mean, without evidence, I mean, he might have been getting evidence from Mike Pompeo. Might have been getting evidence from the CIA and people on the ground who had good intelligence. And he's not going to fucking tell you. So without public evidence, maybe the amended kind of thing there, if you need to do the stupid throat clearing. But what ends up happening there is that when they're doing this, they're establishing what is true and what is not true kind of casually without even noticing it. Because the politics of everything is what is informing it. Because what they might be saying is true. It might be in the scientific consensus at the moment. But what they are aligning is they're not telling me the important shit. Why is no one telling me every day, here is the, the, what we know about how easily this virus is transmitted outside? Tell me why people aren't getting it on subways. Actually, the New York Times did a good thing on that, uh, but it was like it wasn't widely Eventual. spread. Eventually. Eventually. Yeah. It took a while. Why are there no super spreader events on planes? No one. There was a, a study in early study in South Korea that showed one side of an office uh, getting COVID, spreading it a lot, and another side not at all. And it turns out the people on that side was the call center. They were all talking, yelling. They're close to each other. The other people were quietly at their computers. Interesting information, maybe something that you want to spread around. But nobody's doing that because the, the the purpose is is political. Because people live on Twitter, journalists live on Twitter. They live in this universe. They, everything is political. Their lives are political. New York City is political. You know, your coffee that you buy is an act of politics, right? The clothes that you buy, the sustainable this, everything is a fucking act of politics. That just tell me. Am I going to die? And if I am going to die, how am I going to die? What is it, what am I going to do that is going to make me die? Going to There's a uh, concert, you know, in Germany. That seemed to be one, one bad thing. The this was this was I think ultimately the biggest uh, failure of journalism during COVID. I think that like um yes, you know, pointing at the fact checkers who were poo-pooing for a year until last week the lab leak hypothesis is a very interesting case study on its own. But what is the broad failure, the thing that affects our lives the most? Um, It's that I think um, largely in part, uh, not largely, uh, let's say significantly in part to uh, the way that the journalistic and political uh, conversation has happened around COVID people haven't had, haven't felt and still experienced to this day as a surprise um, the uh, differentiating effects of the virus in a way that, like, uh, how can we assess risk? To this day, it is people are like, wait, really? Less than like 400, I don't know what the number is now. Uh, people uh, 18 and under have died from this. 270 something. Yeah. It, it, like, I had to look that up because I don't, I didn't know that. And if you tell people that, they'll be totally shocked. And I have done it. They'll and they're like, told- no, really? Can't be in true. America. Can't be true. 335 million people. Really? 
Uh, I mean, there's been <laughs> there's been some interesting studies done about how American media has been like 90 percent super negative as opposed to like 65 percent super negative in, in, in other industrialized countries. I don't know the exact, you know, if you can put a decimal point on that kind of stuff. Um, but you can experience on a daily basis with some exceptions that you could probably at this point name, including today. We're recording this on a Wednesday. Um, Monica Gandhi, I think her name is. Uh, she co-wrote a piece. She's a great epidemiologist, at the, I think, at the University of San Francisco, um, who's been super valuable in this. She's on the pantheon that includes, from my from my uh, standpoint, and others can have different ones. Emily Oster, who's done really good work. Uh, Zainab Tufetsky from uh, the Atlantic, who's done uh, a very good work about this, but published a piece in the Washington Post today about basically arguing. Uh, but with a ton of stats in there and studies in there that like, let's take the masks off the kids. Yeah. Um, uh, and to, to a degree, I mean, there's still a mask on my six year olds more often than I would like. And, and uh, I there's a lot of different uh, different stakeholders that I aim to convince about this. But um, even talking about this, uh, tweeting this out, discussing this, writing about um, things like this and seeing people's reactions, their reactions are so suffused uh, as if they've been marinating in a bath of innumeracy about this. And let's all grant that this is hard. All this stuff is hard. It it triggers mm. all kinds of responses in all of us, which don't put us at our best, including the three of us, I'm sure, uh, or at least two or the three or one of the three. Yeah, uh, you two assholes, not me. Yeah, it brings out the best in me. <laughs> I, by the uh, way, I think we all did pretty listen, well. I'm a, I'm a black man in America. I've had to suffer through so much. I did several hundred years I, of slavery I, all by and myself. Also, I still can't the believe you got the vaccine. Camille, way, Camille also so. died of COVID like six months ago. We don't know. This is and oh. I did. And then I came this is back. a hologram. Black boy magic. Black boy magic. <laughs> like, that's a, that is such a journalistic failure. And it's a failure uh-huh. of of and 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 uh, not to pick the scab one last time about the distinction between objectivity and truth. <laughs> I knew yeah, it was coming yeah. back. Yeah. I knew it. But truth. Cut his mind. Truth. <laughs> Truth has a, a, an element of religiosity about it, a yes. righteousness about know, it, yeah. in a way that yeah. objectivity does not. And uh, <sighs> yeah, it doesn't. Okay. Uh, and and okay. like if I don't, I think the objectivity thing, for the same reasons that the new journalists that I first cut my teeth on uh, from the '60s and '70s, who I revere to this day, um, dismissed objectivity for the obvious reasons: you can't be objective. Um, so I mm-hmm. think that it's not worth pursuing. Um, I do think, however, a uh, a humble, scientific, even Hayekian approach yes. to knowledge yes. is yes. a fundamentally journalistic trait. But that it, no no that that ought to be it ought the to fundamental be. journalistic exactly. trait. I'm, exactly. So, look, it the statement be. statement of ethics and principles from the Associated Press media editors, and you know oh that God, like we've talked about this before. Oh, he's no, you, we've talked Google about this before. I just pulled up, <laughs> I just pulled up notes from a presentation that I've given to to uh, to the, to the team at, at Freethink in the past. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> about about the principles, the principles and values of a good media organization. Their definition. Like responsibility, accuracy, and integrity. And responsibility, the description here is is fair, accurate, honest, responsible, independent, and decent. And to and to your credit here, Matt, truth is its guiding principle. That sounds like religion right there. And integrity, what are they talking about? 
strive for impartial treatment of issues and dispassionate handling of controversial subjects. Expression of personal opinion should be clearly labeled. I, I kind of no, like that last. I, no I kind of like that last part. That's, but actually, okay. the strive for impartial treatment of issues and dispassionate handling of controversial subjects. I actually don't think that goes remotely far enough. I don't care that you have deep feelings about this. In fact, I suspect that you do. I probably would like to know what they are. Yeah. I might be interested in where your biases are taking you. What is more important, and this is something I've said before for OG Fifth Column listeners, but it's worth restating, show your work. Yep. Give me questions, lean into the complexity, and I do think that is the remedy here. Like if the conversation we're having about like COVID journalism and how it was bad um, and, and also what would have made it better, Leaning into the complexity from the outset would have made it. We better, did that, by the way. Still I just want to say better. we had a. We had, I think if you went back, we have a pretty good track record on COVID. Uh, oh, we, we did. Yeah. Yeah. Surprise! We're, we're, I mean, we're not, and, and we got some things. We got some things wrong, I'm and sure, we talked yeah, about we that. Got, we, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, the, I think we're the only people that were like, we got that wrong, and we talked about it. Um, the, the one word in that that I think is really important, and it guides kind of how I try to make television pieces is um you know people can listen to this and say oh well i know his opinion about x y or z fine i don't care because there's no one on earth that doesn't believe that i have opinions i mean the reason i got into this business is because i had a lot of opinions and that usually takes Mm -hmm. you towards journalism whether it's opinion journalism or just ordinary journalism because you want to find out more and sharpen those opinions or you know have your mind changed about them but the one word that is lost in all this is fact truth you know we're the best, etc. The, the Associated Press thing that you just read used it at the beginning of one of the sentences is the word fair. And that mm-hmm. is desperately what I'm, I'm desperate to try to convey that in the pieces that that uh, that I do. And like, for instance, the last one in Texas, I don't read the comments, the YouTube comments, but my producer told me that the, he was shocked by them because they're always horrible. And he said there were a lot of people pointing <laughs> out like, oh, I didn't expect... I, I just thought it was going to be a piss take of these people like <laughs> laughing at them and everything. I'm like, well, I, yeah. I, I mean, how are you going to understand them? If you're the, if you're their greatest enemy in the world and you're a political consultant yes. or you're just a voter or you're an activist and you just get the snippets where they're saying the dumb things and, you know, Stephen Colbert comes back to him with an arched eyebrow and he makes some pithy comment, you don't know anything. And getting them in their yeah. own environment and just letting people talk um is kind of, I don't I don't know why people would want to hear my opinion. I don't represent any part God of the knows. electorate, you know? Well, no, in that context, <laughs> you're going to see a thing about the Republican Party. It's like, and now here's, you know, one man's opinion about the Republican Party as he's right. No, I want to hear the actual people who vote for Republicans. That's more interesting, right? And, and that fairness is something that I don't see a ton of, and I'm not giving myself any credit for this, but when I do see it, I'm always really appreciative. Like, so for instance, um, I haven't watched it and it's not an issue that I would touch with a 23,000 foot pole, but I was like, oh, interesting that Leslie Stahl at 60 Minutes did a piece on detransitioning, um, which is yeah. a controversial topic. Oh. And did she? Yeah. And, and she's already, she's you know given a statement already. I think they were preparing for this, like straight to camera kind of thing on YouTube. This is why we did the story. Um, 
And if apparently Jeez. it's just like, like, <laughs> you know, not sympathetic. I haven't, I haven't watched it, so I can't really say if it's sympathetic or not. But it, from what I've read and people that I know that care about this stuff and watch it, it said, you know, it's a pretty straight down the middle piece of just someone trying to figure out, okay, there are people that detransition. It doesn't have to be 50% of them. It can be 0.1% of them. Because if it had to be over 1% of the nation that did something, would never report on neo-Nazis, right? That's all we talk about is, you know... Or trans people. Yes, well, exactly, right? Or trans people in general. That's a very good point. It's like all of this stuff is like, well, that's not a majority of them. Well, I respect Leslie Stahl. I haven't seen the piece because you're stepping into a minefield. I mean, these people have established, these really radical activists have established you don't talk about this stuff. And I'm kind of interested. I want to see that this is the the result sometimes that you know, logically would happen. But it just seems that she did a fair piece and just said, I want to hear your opinions. Mm. We'll let the viewers make up their mind. I know that this is boring to talk about because it seems so straightforward and so obvious. But it's really, really hard for people to do it. The instinct is almost so overwhelming. It's like there's, you know, you're starving and someone's just put a piece of cake in front of you and you're like, I really, I'm just going to eat it. <laughs> like, I'm just going to jump into it. No, 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 you can't have it. <laughs> it's like you cannot prevent people from doing that, particularly in edits. When you get into edit and like, ah, let's, you know, look at that. That's the fat loser who said the stupid thing and let's put them up front. And, you know, it's what they said, but we're by, by arrangement, we're making them look silly, Right. Well, that doesn't do anything. I mean, that uh, you can they, if they say something silly and it's in the context of something, put it in there. People will laugh at it and people will say, what a dope. But I don't need to be thumbing the scale and everything all the time. But I just feel it more and more and more people are laying on the scale. And I just so it's mm-hmm. so fucking boring. It is there so is, boring. And I, I probably mentioned this one time before, at least. Um uh, Michael Kinsley was the uh, uh, opinion editor, editorial page editor for the uh, L.A. Times from like 2006, 2004, 2005, something like that. Right before I joined, like he obviously hated me, so I wasn't going to join. But once he was well, drummed out of town, uh, his underlings hired me. Um, but uh, he wrote these series of memos um, that still exist on the Internet. I looked at one of them recently. Uh, they are some of the best um, things ever written, literally, about opinion journalism mm. and how you should conduct it. And one of the points that he made, essentially, was that just because you're in opinion journalism doesn't mean that suddenly you drop the journalism part. Mm. In fact, like the way to make a convincing argument, this is like OG Steelman stuff, is you go and don't like cherry pick the worst of your opponent You Mm -hmm. get their argument at their best and you demonstrate convincingly that it is wrong. And Mm -hmm. that is actually a much harder thing to do. So it's going to make you better. Um, And that is true to this day. And it's a thing that um, always bothers me in in the in the context of watching um, journalistic outfits that have a more kind of straight or, you know, a, a more broad uh, uh, kind of con- self-conception than what Reason Magazine, for example. Reason Magazine is a libertarian magazine. We're going to make libertarian arguments for sure. And, yes, yeah, sometimes I'm going to absolutely take the piss out of Randy Weingarten or whoever the hell is, is annoying me at this time. But, like, if you're going to try to persuade someone of that their point of view is wrong, you're going to have to portray that point of view uh, accurately. Um, and in its best light, and then to kind of get it get in after it, um, and also to 
try to write and comport uh, for an audience is thankfully it's something reason has done from its conception um, of like, oh, so not everyone who reads and, and consumes this is going to be fluent in the non-aggression principle. Maybe I should write as if uh, like I want to reach out to those people. And I, I, I to this day, I don't understand. There was someone who on Twitter the other day, I, I mentioned something about it school stuff school reopening stuff as one can imagine um and the guy the guy came back to me it's like like oh you're no thomas sowell lol and like okay i don't know what that means but i presume it's an insult <laughs> white and uh white and uh, <laughs> and boring white guy and and what he, he came back to me was like well you're not a battering ram and i'm like that's correct. I am not a batter. I, I don't wake up in the morning and say, I want to feed an arsenal. I want to increase the stock of weapons that people can pick up and smash the other guy in the face. Like, that's but, not. But that's also not true. It's also not true of Thomas Sowell. I mean, it's somebody who doesn't understand performance because Thomas Sowell is two people. He is the one who writes crazy um, op-eds about like Trump and the rest of it, and somebody who's, which is what that guy was clearly it's what he's referring to. Yeah, yeah. And but if you read Conquests and Cultures, for instance, um, Revision of the Anointed, two books that I've, I I thought are really influential and had some influence on me, and I really enjoyed them. And stuff you know of his that I disagree with, but that's you know academic work. I mean, the guy's an economist. He's written textbooks on economics, one called Basic Economics. I mean, one a, a book on Marxism. This is not the same person who writes who writes um, things, but you know, that is the we play a lot of roles in this in this in this world of journalism. And uh yeah, you're no Thomas Sowell. I, I don't which one? Yeah, I just I just don't I mean uh, I know that there is there is a huge market uh out there and use out there actually for people who do uh, take their their work as instrumental in a political fight and in a culture war. And it's perpetually disappointing for not a small subset of people that I'm super not interested and never have been, but like I'm super not interested and never have been. I, I, I actually want to increase the store of knowledge in the world in my humble, tiny little hovel ability to do anything h-o-l-v-e-l in that sense um uh, ability to do any of it which i presume is incredibly limited and like that's like why you're fucking doing journalism and it's so weird to me to see people who don't work for expressly ideological publications which i do um who seem to have a different view towards that where like oh we don't want to take anybody's best uh things we we're, we're gonna uh, fight against both sidesism um and we're not in the persuasion business we're in the club we're in the weaponry business and i just i i fundamentally don't get it and at some point i'm going to be an old man shaking my fist at clouds can i uh, moynihan quickly you mentioned leslie stahl earlier and you said you respect leslie stahl uh, am i remembering incorrectly it was leslie stahl that did that weird interview with donald trump that was yes, like yeah bizarrely yeah, yeah. Okay. adversarial in this yeah, like yeah, really yeah, yeah. obviously motivated yeah, sure. way and edited and edited to, to the point where, edited, yeah yeah that's and the then problem. and then trump like storms out but also um it ends like trump takes the one like kind of quote unquote victory that he had where he, like he's obviously being mistreated and ends with this huge fucking lie 
where he says, she's asking, where is the plan, Mr. President? I have somebody bring it in. And he goes out the window. who walks in with like 52 volumes of bullshit that they set in front of her. And this was the healthcare plan that was supposed to materialize months earlier, years earlier, weeks later. Um, even even in that moment, he could not help himself. That's just I total mean, bullshit. Yeah, th- that was an Artist. editing thing, I think, because like, I mean, she should be yeah. adversarial. She should be super adversarial as the president. I'm interested in seeing this piece that she did. Though, yeah, I'm going to um, watch on, it tonight. I mean, it's a hard thing, though, and this is the hard thing when you are yeah. CBS or 60 Minutes or a mainstream media outlet, and the president of the United mm-hmm. States is only giving interviews to even a very narrow band of people at one network even then you know you're not going to do right. Chris Wallace or you know probably even Brett Baer or somebody who's going to be slightly critical is that how do you get to mm-hmm. those people and you know there's a certain amount of deception that always happens right of like mm-hmm. promising mm-hmm. hey I love your stuff you know people say this shit all the time you don't love their stuff you're just trying to get them you know butter them up a little bit and get them to sit down but um, but yeah so she's she's uh, you know a, a hit and miss is a as a as a journalist but uh i do like that you know she's seven thousand years old and just doesn't give a fuck if a bunch of people on twitter are going to be mad at her so you know good for good for her yeah before we bounce i, I saw this clip of uh, madison square garden tonight packed to the gills with people mm-hmm. shoulder to fucking shoulder it there's something pretty remarkable about that it's fine uh, also the next beat the hawks on? 92 to 101 um, no, I don't see a lot. I don't see a lot of masks in this in this footage. Um, it's from far I away. I was at Lowe's uh, but, today, and but one must imagine that most of these people didn't yeah. have masks on because they had vaccines. Oh, they it showed, was less yeah. than yeah. It showed the vax vax card at the Nets game. It was less than fifty. It was probably thirty. There was an event um, in Texas right after it opened up, and it was like thirty thousand people, uh-huh. and I can't remember what it was. Yeah, yeah, it was like a baseball yeah, game. It, I think it, it was. Far, yeah, it was. Pretty sure it was a baseball yeah. game. Sold out yeah. Rangers game. Yeah, actually, yeah, forty-eight thousand. That's yeah. right. And, it, and, it, and people, people were, people were going to die. I, it was going to be an I, epidemic I of death happen. afterwards. Yeah. Can, can we also? Could you imagine the <laughs> Rachel? Like, if it was the you know, the, if these fucking late night people like took the piss out of this stupid um, administration as much as they did with the last stupid administration, but is that Rachel Walensky? Mm-hmm. Is that's her name, right? She's so forgettable. Yeah. You remember the thing mm. when Boston, Boston, she's from Newton. Yeah, I don't consider that part of Boston. Um, okay. Yeah, whatever, Rachel. Yeah, go back to your fancy oh. suburbs where you make bad <laughs> predictions about COVID, buddy. <laughs> remember, she was like, it's gonna. She was like crying. Do you remember when she cried? Yeah, like a month this ago. This is like three months. Two, no, two months, two months ago, ago she was Max. like, it's going to yeah, come yeah. back and murder everyone. I don't know why I'm sounding like Chris Farley doing Matt Foley, but it's like, <laughs> no, but it's, it's like, fine. I mean, it was like, wait. Does anyone go back to that and be like, "What the fuck? That was kind of crazy." No. And well, actually, I think I think more and more people are like the the there has been a pretty decent journalistic pushback against how crappy she and the CDC has been with their school guidance from February, which was reversed after five weeks or something yeah. like that. And right now, there's a lot of pressure on the uh, the you know masking for two year olds at summer camp thing, which I predict will be reversed you know next week as well. Um, so yeah, people people are are coming after her. She's she's done real bad. Uh, and and I you know it'll be I haven't read the Michael Lewis book yet, um, but I think when we when we look back at the history of all this kind of stuff. The real villains of the of the COVID pro, uh, process, Donald Trump acted like a, a ridiculous, crazy asshole, and he's just really not one of the villains. He's um, he's a, a, he acted like an absolute cretin 
And it's so funny because today <laughs> I, I saw something in the Washington Post. I was going back to look at all these old pieces and there was one headline and it was like, why does America suck so bad compared to the reaction of every other country in the world? We're lagging. So many people are dying here and everywhere else in the world is mm. just amazing because they're all locked in cages mm. and you know, they have like gimp masks on and like, yay, yeah. isn't this amazing? And I'm like, no, that's because they're just German. That's how they dress always. And, um, and uh, so you like look at it and it's like, Oh yeah, there's an enormous like testing. They fucked up really bad. There's all, all sorts of things that we talked about in the podcast in the past, but you know, in the this is the thing is that we cannot get over ourselves when we talk about this yeah. when it comes to race we're the only racist people in the world we're the only people that hate immigrants we're the only people that do a lot of things and it's like we're the only people where people died and it's like you guys looked at fucking belgium <laughs> there's like fifty thousand people in belgium and forty thousand are dead and the rest are just yeah. like poirot or something i don't know it's tintin but it is, i'm trying to think of something famous in belgium you know, plastique Bertrand. Um, but, you know, it's like it, it, everybody Stop, did Bob, shitty, boom, you know? I am the king of the divan. Yeah. But, um, yeah, anyway, it's another episode. I was just going to say it reminds me of a tweet I saw from Connor um, earlier this week, uh, our friend Connor's Friedrich's Friedrich German, The Atlantic, who posted, <laughs> <laughs> who posted you, a tweet a lot to the effect of, you know, the the pandemic response like the vaccine rollout in particular uh in in light of that american healthcare doesn't look so bad oh, yeah, relative yeah. to the rest was of the was that connor's world, own piece I thought, yeah it was oh, connor's own he tweet. must have gotten he was just he just tweeted that for that uh, yeah some people p- tried to tried to come for him um Can't but, have that opinion. Know. um quick quick question another basketball related thing moynihan because boston Kyrie Irving's comments earlier this week. I don't know if you saw this. I didn't know. Um, uh, Kyrie Irving was talking about the fact that they're playing the Celtics and, you know, they're, they're beating the snot out of the, beating the brakes off of the Celtics, as one says, um, a, a depleted Celtics team. And as they're going into game three, which will be in Boston, mm-hmm. Kyrie suggested that he hopes that the fans can keep this strictly about basketball and specifically alludes to racial slurs that have been hurled at NBA players in the context of Boston sports in particular, that the fans are racist and they're going to yell racial epithets. I wonder if you know about this this general allegation that's been lobbed. And I also wonder how it works when Kyrie Irving used to be a Celtic, um, was I imagine cheered for by the fans there, as is the current Celtics team, and mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd also imagine that the racial demographic of that Celtics team is overwhelmingly mm-hmm. black, uh, as most NBA teams are. Oh, they cheer and vigorously for the people they that probably they hate. <laughs> don't have racial yeah, slurs. Yeah. They're like so I hurled at them. Hate the black people on yeah. that team, but I love the black people on this team, <laughs> and that's racist. And this is just kind of accepting. Uh, I don't know what specific racial slurs or incidents that he's talking about. Maybe those exist. Yeah, he didn't He didn't mention any well, specific I, ones. He just alluded guess, to it, and everyone seems to be co-signing it. Like, of course, obviously, well, it's, it's, super it, racism in Boston. Because, you know, like, when we talk about race, it is very important. And as we're told, you know, ad nauseum, uh, not to indulge mm. in stereotypes. 
this is a bussing mm-hmm. stereotype. This has been around for ages. This is one that comes <laughs> from bussing. And, you know, it comes mm-hmm. from, you know, very, very slow integration of the Boston Red Sox. We talked about Pumpsy Green the other day. Um, this yeah. is, you know, if you could make the argument that Boston sports fans or, you know, Boston pe- people in Boston in general, very, very liberal city reliably liberal and you know even when it's gonna you know kind of say okay let's have a republican you get charlie baker or mitt romney or bill weld i mean these are the republicans these are the real right wingers that when you get a little republican influence in in uh, massachusetts that's that's who you get um but you know i could i could list a a bunch of other accomplishments too on, on on racial matters i've already listed listed the failures this has stuck around for so long you know, no one says about Philadelphia, which I guarantee you is more racist than Boston. <laughs> just, you know, j- <laughs> just because I've been there. That's only, I'm, to, to you all you listeners so. in Philadelphia, you know that I'm right. We love you. In your heart, you yeah. know that I'm right. Um, but this is the thing. This sticks around, man. It's so crazy that it's like Boston is a city of just like, you know, frothing at the mouth racism. And I just don't understand how it's so persistent despite there being a lack of you know examples of this happening all the time you know i see was, was not bill russell the first black coach in the nba he might have been he might have been yeah i don't know um um who's the black senator yeah, from I, from massachusetts in the in the 70s uh what the hell was his name um was he a senator or was he a congressman? I think he was a senator. I can't remember. Uh, I, but he was a 70s guy. But it was it. Um, but, you know, it is busing. That's essentially where Boston got its reputation. Yeah. And that picture. And the picture was, you know, stabbing with the flag. And by the way, if you want to see, uh, which, by the way, happened again on January 6th. Um, if you want to see and if you want to read an interesting story, read the story of the man who was attacking the black guy with the flag. Because from memory and a very 22nd pricey is that he was a down on his luck guy, you know, working class kind of shithead, nothing going for him. And he's stabbing, uh, with the kind of, uh, staff of the American flag with the, with the, you know, that top he's going after him. a man in a suit, uh, who's black and who is a very accomplished lawyer. And it's just perfectly 1970s Boston of some rat bag. Uh, and, and the guy um, has confronted it since. Um, and the Boston Globe has talked to him. And, and uh, I think he's very apologetic. There's a book about it, by the way. There's a, I have it on my shelf, a book about the desecration of the flag in that one moment. And it's a pretty interesting look at Boston at the time. And, uh, you know, Luis Day Hicks and like the Democrats that were really opposed to busing and a lot of racist politicians at the time. But um, but yeah, that's that's I, I don't. It's amazingly persistent. My snap, uh, a superficial uh, look at it as someone who's from LA, so I hated Boston, and I, in fact, I hate Michael. <laughs> um, uh, is that uh, in the same way, like in, do the right thing, right? Like there was a guy who was 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 portrayed <laughs> as obviously a douche because he's in mm-hmm. Bed Stuy and he's white, and what is he doing with his little bike? He's wearing a bird jersey. Mm-hmm. And like it felt like the great rivalry in basketball at the time between the Showtime Lakers with Magic Johnson, the only person with two names about his dick besides <laughs> Pete Lecoq. Um, uh, you know, they're pure like a bunch of really incredibly athletic and 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 uh, entertaining black guys plus Kurt Rambis. 
against a team that just felt super white and Larry Bird and all this kind of stuff. Two things about that. The, I was so uh, blinded by hatred about that that um, I uh, uh, was unable to appreciate in real time how awesome those Celtics teams were. And they're so great. And I love to like just go on YouTube and see how they play. It's wonderful. But I think that that extended the reputation. Like Danny Ainge's punchable face made that flag wielding photo live an extra 25 years uh, i'm i'm super convinced one, one of the one of the great um toronto blue jays of all time he had nothing to do with the, the celtics uh yes. but i just want to add something it was it was uh <laughs> senator edward brooke um who uh also i had an affair with barbara walters uh in the 70s but he was a, he was who and he was a didn't. he was a republican he was a liberal um Republican and uh, won, and I had to look at this election. It was sixty-six that he he won by a lot, uh, by about five hundred thousand votes. And this is the greatest thing. Talk about you know, uh, black Republican, you know, on the liberal end of the Republican spectrum, uh, defeating uh, his Democratic opponent opponent with the most Brahmin Boston name ever, Governor Endicott Peabody. So Endicott oh, Peabody lost uh, to Edward uh, Brooke who then uh, served until 79 or something like that. And we uh, saw yeah. that peninsula. So off into yeah, the there you go. There you go. Racist Massachusetts had a, had a black Senator in 1966 assholes. <laughs> um, and we, we're, we're getting to the end here. Uh, we really got to get it. This is like bypassed what, <laughs> yeah, no, we, we probably bypassed what is among the most important stories uh, in the country right now. The, president of the united states is looking at a, a potential grand jury not potential he's, he's gonna there's gonna be a grand yes. jury in new york looking at potential fraud and um yeah we don't know details really yeah well the the general shape of things appears to be that he inflated and deflated the value of his properties in ways that were dishonest in order to gain advantage with respect to taxes but also loan applications and such to get, you know, friendly treatment from various financial institutions. Again, the, the, the details of this aren't if quite that's clear. that's all you get after all this. <laughs> but but this, is the, this is the thing. It seems to be a pretty it's determined bad, but, effort you know. on the part of a government that is hostile, politically unaligned with him. And a, a grand jury, as we've talked about before, um, there are different kinds of grand juries, but grand juries in general, this, this notion that they could indict a ham sandwich, um, charges that are kind of vague in ways that are beneficial to the prosecution and disadvantageous to the defense. Like the prosecution of former presidents of the United States, political opponents and enemies, at a minimum, it creates uh, some optics that are challenging and that call to mind President Trump's own rhetoric when he was running for president, which most people found pretty objectionable um, when he suggested that Hillary Clinton would be in jail. Lock her up. Lock her up was the chant. Um, there seems to be a lot of glee related to this um, in most corners who are covering this story. Um, and can't blame him. <laughs> I, I know I'm I, there. There is a part of me that is uncomfortable with this, even not knowing a lot of the details uh, just yet. Uh, and I think there's a lot to navigate, which is why we didn't spend a great deal of time talking about it today, because I think we're all trying to digest it. And again, there's just a lot we don't know, but it does seem worth, uh, you know, putting a pin in that. Talk to, we'll talk to Jane about something it. we'll pay oh, yeah. attention to. 
Bye. 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 We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.